All right, we're going to dive into uh, our sermon this morning. And so if you have a Bible with you, would you please turn to Luke 14? And if you didn't uh, come with a Bible, that's all right. There should be a red one uh, close by you on a chair. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one home with you. We want to make sure everyone's got access to the Word of God at home. Um, all right, would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 14? Should be page 509 uh, in the Red Bible. We're going to be looking at um, the first verse, and then we're going to jump to verses 11 or 7 through 11, and then 15 through 24. We're going to be looking uh, at the last parable in this sermon series. We've been looking at parables in the ministry of Jesus' time in the Gospel of Luke, and um, we've said all along that a parable is simply this. It's a story that teaches us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, to live rightly in relationship to God and to one another. And we're coming up on the last parables that we're going to look at this morning and um, C.S. Lewis, in his masterful work, Mere Christianity, talks about the thing that we're going to talk about today. He talks about this one sin, which is the gateway to all other sins. It's the one vice that can wrap people up and produce in them a desire for so much wrong. And he's not talking about lust, although, uh, you know, that plagues pretty much everyone in this room to one degree or another. He's not talking about hate, even though we, if we're honest, all feel a little bit of hate boiling up in our hearts sometimes. No, he's talking about a sin that plagues everyone in the world, something that is so destructive. He's talking about pride, hubris, that desire for fame and glory that we all secretly and desperately desire. We're going to look at what Jesus has to say about pride here in Luke 14. And as we read this passage, we're going to see what is the problem of pride, what is the gateway to glory, and what is the incredible invitation. So if you've got uh, your bulletin and you want to take notes, that's where we're headed this morning. What is the problem with pride? What is the gateway to glory? And what is the incredible invitation? But first, let's read the passage. Luke 14, starting in verse 1, and then we'll jump down to verse 7. One Sabbath, when he, that's Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And then to verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then jump down to verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him 
heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, that's Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everyone is, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excuse. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me be excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do not want to be people known for pride. And so we ask through your spirit and your word that you would convict us of that. Show us the gateway to glory and lead us in. Lead us into the feast this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus has been invited to this dinner party. And uh, it's a pretty big deal. There's uh, lots of prominent men in the city who have come there. This is the ruler of the Pharisees. It's probably got people on the outside trying to look in to see who's invited, what are they talking about, what are they eating. It's a pretty big deal. And Jesus is there. He's sitting, he's watching people. And as they come in, he's watching as they sort of weasel their way in to find the best seat. They're trying to grab the best seat so that when the host begins and everyone takes a seat, they'll be the closest to the host. Now, I don't know about you, but when I invite people over for dinner, the only seats that we care about are where our son and daughter are going to sit. You know, all the other seats are up for grabs, and maybe that's like you too. We don't have seats of honor in our houses right now. But there's one tradition in our culture that still maintains this process, and that's wedding receptions. Just think about the last time you went to a wedding. Usually you go to the reception and there's a table with name tags and you find your name and it's got the table number that you're going to sit at. So then you go and find your seat and you look around and you're wondering, hey, how close am I to the head table? Because how close you are to the head table really determines how much the bride and groom like you, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm being facetious, but that's, you know, in typical fashion, you've got the head table with the, the wedding couple and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and the next table's immediate family. Uh, and then you've got distant family, and then you've got close friends, and then distant friends, and then way off in the corner, you've got strangers. There were strangers at my wedding, people I had never met before and have never seen since then. They sat in the back corner. I'm so glad that they were there, but that's how we determine who sits at a wedding, right? It's how close of a relationship do you have to the wedding couple? That's the place of honor at the head table. And that's what's going on here. In this big banquet, Jesus is looking around and people are trying to get as close as they can to the head table. So we understand what is going on. We understand what's happening. And Jesus sees what's happening 
and he says a parable to rebuke what's happening. Because he's seeing all these people vying for the places of honor, and he says this isn't right. And so this is the parable. He's rebuking their behavior. He says, when you are invited to a party, don't sit in the seats of honor. Just in case the host comes in and says, excuse me, there is someone more important than you. Please go to the back of the room. What Jesus is condemning here is pride. Pride is this false sense of self. It's thinking of yourself too highly than you ought to, that you deserve more than what you really deserve, viewing yourself as more important than you really are. Now, the root of pride is this inflated understanding of who we are, uh, that we've accomplished more than we've accomplished, that we've achieved more than we've achieved, that we deserve the acclaim more than what we really deserve. And that's what's happening in this party. Each person is thinking of himself as more important than the next person next to them. It's like everyone is coming into the room, and as they step in, they're looking around, and they pull out their mental measuring stick, and they say, all right, how do I line up against everyone else here? Where do I fit in relationship to them? And then I need to go find my place. We measure ourselves up against other people, and that's what's happening here. At the root of pride is this competitive desire, because pride is inherently competitive. You know, we, we say, you know, um, we look at one another and we say, where do I stand in relationship to them? That's what pride is. Pride doesn't say, I want to have money. Pride says, I want to have more money than that person. Pride doesn't say, I want to be smart and intelligent and know more. Pride says, I want to know more than my family or friends on Facebook. Pride doesn't say, I want to look good. Pride says, I want to look better than her or him. Pride is fundamentally a competitive desire to say, I am better, I am richer, I am smarter, I am better looking, I am greater. C.S. Lewis says this about pride, that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. That's what pride is, and it eats away at our soul. And here's exactly where the problem of pride is is revealed. If pride is essentially a competitive desire, a longing to be better, smarter, prettier, richer, more popular, more praised than the next person, then it will consume you. It will eat you alive. You will always be going after something more. But here's the problem. There will always be someone who has more than you. There will always be someone who looks better than you. There will always be someone who makes more than you or achieves more than you or is greater than you. This is the problem of pride. You will never be satisfied in your desires. You will never reach the end where you are the greatest. There will always be someone more than you. And this is exactly what Jesus says in his parable. In verse 8, he says, if you take the seat of the, the, the place of honor, the host is going to come to you and say, someone else more distinguished than you has come. Someone else more distinguished than you has come. This is the problem with pride. There is always someone else who is more distinguished than you. You will never have enough. 
Whatever it is that you're looking for, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never get that fame or the honor or the respect that you're longing for, and you'll end up ruining the relationships that you have in pursuit of it. And here's why. Two things happen when we are, are proud and longing for this fame and honor. Well, first, uh, you realize that, let's see, you'll, you'll never feel secure enough to give honor and respect to other people. People won't want to be around you because all you care about is promoting yourself, and you'll never have that freedom to say, wow, you did a great job. You know, you've really succeeded. You've really achieved. When you're so consumed about making yourself great, you have no freedom to praise someone else for the honor that's due to them. But the second reason why uh, pride ruins our relationships is friends and family and coworkers no longer exist to be friends family, or coworkers, they become pawns. They become people to triumph over. They become competitors to say, hey, I'm better than them. I'm greater than them. And so people don't want to be around you because they see you just using you to make themselves better. Pride ruins our relationships. One, it makes us not able to be around others because we don't want to praise and honor them. And it makes others not want to be around us. Because all we do is look at them and say, where do I stand in relationship to them? This is perhaps most clearly seen in our relationship with God. Because no matter how great you feel you are, God is infinitely greater than you. No matter how you know, righteous you might think you are, God is infinitely more righteous than you. No matter how wise you think you are, God is infinitely wiser than you. God is so far greater than you that there, man, if you are consumed with pride, then you just can't stand in the face and the presence of God because he is so much greater than you. When we come to know who God is, for Christians, when we come to know who God is and how great he is, pride has no room in our heart. And in fact, if you are a Christian and you struggle with pride, what that means is you have a faulty view of who God is. Because if you really knew who God was, then you couldn't entertain or cultivate pride at all. And yet, we have it in our hearts. Here's some diagnostic questions to ask yourself. Hey, do I struggle with pride? Do you have a hidden sense of competition and comparison with those around you? Maybe people in the same life stage or work uh, career as you. Do you feel competitive towards them? Do you compare yourself to them? Second, are you more concerned about your own accomplishments in life, making a name for yourself, than you are about making an impact in another person's life? You know, when you enter into a relationship, do you think, how can this person promote me? Or do you think, how can I help this person and promote them? Do you ever feel slighted when your work does not go noticed and praised, but another person's does? Do you feel like you deserve the honor and fame for what you've done? Are you portraying a false sense of self whether that's to friends or family or online these days, are you portraying a, a false uh, inflated sense of who you are and fear that maybe one day you'll be found out? 
All these are diagnostic questions to ask yourself and ask, am I struggling with pride? And here's one I think for a lot of Christians to ask yourself. Do you have someone in your life, a close peer or mentor, with whom you can be completely open and honest with? If you don't, or if you don't want that, I think that is a red flag that maybe you're struggling with pride because that close mentor or peer relationship says, I'm completely open. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care who I am in relationship to others. I want to be real with you. I want to be open about who I am. But if you're choosing not to have that relationship, maybe that's a red flag that deep down you fear being compared to others. Pride affects us all to one degree or another, but in this parable, Jesus is offering us something far greater. Rather than pride, Jesus says, you can have glory. So what is the gateway to glory? That leads me into my second point. Look at verse 10. Jesus continues his parable, and he says this, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. He says, then you will be honored. That word honor in the Greek is actually the word glory. You know, other places where it's translated honor, that's a different word. This word is glory. And you might know the word glory from back when in the Old Testament, When God's presence would come and fill the temple, his radiant glory would shine and the people would hide their faces. Or when Moses went up on the mountain to talk with God, he would come back and his face shone with the glory of God. Or when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration changes and becomes glorified, Peter and John have to hide away. They can't look at the radiant glory of God. And Jesus says, you can have this glory. You can be glorified. How? I mean, that that makes so much sense to us because I think pride is this result of wanting to have glory, right? And Jesus says, you can have it. Look, desiring glory is not a bad thing. We were actually made for glory. Back in the Garden of Eden, when God created humanity, he created us in God's image. And among many things, what that means is we were designed to reflect the glory of God. In all of our relationships, in all of our life, the way that we parent our kids was to reflect the glory of God. The way that we go to work and work with integrity and befriend coworkers and work diligently was to reflect the glory of God. The way we interact with our neighbors on the street and in our city was to reflect the glory of God. The way we use our finances, the way we use our bodies, the way we use our relationships and family was to reflect the glory of God. We were made for glory. We were made to reflect God's glory. But we took that command, we took that privilege, and we said, Lord, I don't want to make you famous. I want to make myself famous. And that's the root of pride. It's saying, Lord, you made me to glorify you, and yet I want to glorify myself. This is why C.S. Lewis says pride is the gateway to all other sins. Because when we are proud, 
we say, God, you made me to glorify you, but I want to glorify myself. Man, I want glory. I really do. Often when I think about Story Church, I want us to grow, and I want us to reach out into the community. I want people to know our name. I want people to see me at the grocery store and see my shirt that has the logo and says, oh, you're Story Church, right? Like, I want that feeling. On, on good days, I want that because I want people to come here to meet us and to hear the message of God's love through his son Jesus who died for them. But on bad days, I want people to know our name because that would bring me glory. And that's wrong. But I think we all struggle with that a little bit. We want people to know us. We want people to like us. We want people to heap praise and honor on us. We all want glory. Jesus says you can be gloried. You can have this glory. But it's not going to come the way you think. It's not going to come the way you think. So what then is the gateway of glory? Jesus continues in verse 11. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, the gateway to glory is humility. Now, humility, I think I need to pause here and define it. Because our culture doesn't like humility. It is not a virtue in our society. Just think about the workplace. You won't get anywhere in the workplace if you're humble. No, you got to assert yourself. You got to be ambitious. You got to cut corners where you can. You got to put others down to raise you up. If you want to get anywhere in the business world, you can't be humble. Just think about politics, and you know, I, I know everyone's thinking about politics these days. If you want to run for an office, you can't be humble. I mean, all the promotions are, look at everything I've done and I will do for you, and look at how terrible my opponent has done. If you want to get anywhere in politics, you can't be humble. Humility is not a virtue in our society. Just think of pop psychology, popular psychology. When, when someone is feeling down about their life, when things aren't going well, what does pop psych say? It doesn't say be humble. It says, no, boost your self-esteem. Tell yourself you're better. Tell yourself you're worth more. Tell yourself, surround yourself with the people that will bring you up, not bring you down. I think our culture doesn't like humility because we don't understand it. What we think humility is as a society is think less of yourself. No one wants to do that. But true humility is not thinking less of yourself. You might think pride, thinking more of yourself, humility, thinking less of yourself. No, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis continues. He says, if you meet someone who is proud, you will learn so much about them because they will not stop talking about themselves. They want you to know everything they've ever done. But it'll be really hard for you to know if you've truly met a humble person. Because all they'll want to do is ask about you. They won't care about themselves. All they care about is getting to know you. That's what true humility is. When we walk into a room and we see other people around, do we size ourselves up against them and say, how can these people promote me? What can I get out of this relationship? Well, that's what a proud person does. 
But when a truly humble person enters a room and sees someone, they think, how can I make them greater? How can I get to know them and encourage them? How can I make an impact in their lives? I don't care about me. I don't care about where I stand in relationship to them. I want to advance them. I want to bring them into the family of God. I want to encourage them in the family of God. I want to lift them up and strengthen them in their faith. That's what a truly humble person does when they enter a room. Jesus says, the gateway to glory is humility. But our society doesn't understand that. So Jesus says, if you are humbled then you will be exalted. It doesn't make sense. It's backwards. I mean, our society doesn't work like this, but the kingdom of God does. Jesus is saying, if you want to go up, you have to go down. Back in the mid-2000s, Hollywood was pumping disaster movie after disaster movie out into the theaters. Uh, You know, there were some pretty crazy ones, but one of them in 2006 came out called Poseidon. Maybe you've seen it. It's a movie about a group of people on a cruise ship out in the ocean uh, on like a New Year's Eve cruise. And right at midnight on New Year's Eve, a giant wave comes crashing against the cruise ship. And, uh, you know, because it's a Hollywood movie, things aren't real. And so the, the cruise ship flips first on its side. The wave comes crashing in. It's turning off the electricity. Everyone's, all the rooms are flooding up. Uh, But because some air gets trapped in some of the compartments, the ship flips upside down and is remaining floating, but upside down. And so the few guests who survived the initial crash must figure out how do we survive? Well, first they think, all right, if I want to get off of a boat, I better go to the top deck. And so they climb and work their way through this an upside-down ship, and they reach the top deck only to find it's at the bottom, and it's covered with water, and there's no way out from the top deck. But the wise guests say, no, the ship's upside down. If, if I want to get out, I have to go to the engine room. If I want to go up, I have to go down. And so they work their way to the engine room, which now sits at the top of the boat, and they wait there, and at the end of the movie, they're rescued, and, you know, that's how it ends. So sorry, spoiler alert. But Jesus knows this, and the passengers know this, that if you want to go up, you have to go down. It doesn't make sense to this world that doesn't understand humility, but Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, the gateway to glory is humility. The gateway to glory is humility, and I think Jesus knows this better than most, because Jesus took the path of humility. Jesus took the path of being a servant. When he became flesh and dwelt among us, he became a servant in this life. A servant obedient to his father to the point of death on a cross, the humiliating death on a cross. But it was when he was as far down as he could possibly get, the father raised him up and seated him in the heavens at the right hand of God on high. Jesus knows the path to glory. He's taken it through the cross into the grave and now up into glory. And he says, if you want to come to glory, you have to go down too. You have to choose humility. That's the invitation that Jesus is offering us today. This invitation to find glory, the thing that we're craving so deeply, and the way to get it, is through humility. The 
the way to the great banquet and feast, to the seats of honor with Christ is through humility. Now, you and I might be asking, Jesus, I want to come. I I, want to know where is this banquet? Where is this feast? Where is the party happening? What we need now is an incredible invitation, and that's where Jesus goes next, this third uh, section. He continues uh, at the table. The dinner goes on, and someone leans over to Jesus and says, uh, you know, he leans in, and he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This guy is listening to Jesus and says, I want to go there. Man, it's going to be so nice to dine in God's kingdom. Blessed is everyone who's invited to that party. And so Jesus shares this parable specifically to say, don't you assume who's invited. Don't you presume to think that you are a shoe-in to this invitation. He tells this story. There was a man who threw a great party. He invited many people. But when the time came for the guests to come, each one of the invited guests gave some pretty lame excuses. The first one said, hey, I just bought some land, and I need to go look at it. I mean, who buys land without first looking at it? That just seems stupid. The second person says, hey, I just bought some oxen for my cart, and I need to go examine them. Again, no one in their right mind would just randomly buy oxen without first examining them to see, do they work? Do they fit the cart? Another lame excuse. And then the third just doesn't make any sense. I just, I just got married. I can't come to the party. Sorry. I don't know if it's a problem with the wife or a problem with him. Either way, a lame excuse. I can't come to the feast. So the master of the house says, all right, servants, go into the city, invite the poor, invite the lame, the crippled, invite them to come to the party. These people who I wanted to invite, they didn't want to come. Now I'm offering an incredible invitation. So the servant goes and he brings them in and he fills up the room and he says, Master, there's still more room at the feast. I've done what you've done. I've brought in the poor and the lame and the crippled. Who else can we invite? And the master says, go now on the highways. Go out of the city. Go into the countryside. Go to those people who are far off and bring them in. These people who had never been to the city before, who had never been invited to a banquet like this, invite them. And so they come in and they join the festival. They join the feast. He says, come to the feast, come to the table. Jesus is emphasizing with this parable to the people who are around him, the religious elites, the the moral insiders, the Pharisees. We've talked about them in this series. He's saying, don't you assume that because you view yourself as these religious elites that you have an invitation Don't assume that you're going to want to be here. My incredible invitation goes out to people who you have cast off. My invitation goes out to those who have been marginalized, who have been sent away, who have been turned away from the temple. Jesus is inviting these people now to come to the great feast in the kingdom of God. How is that possible? How could Jesus throw a feast where the lowly and the outcasts and the humble are invited to the table. Well, I said it before, Jesus took the path of humility. He went to the cross and then to the grave and was raised again, taking away your sin, giving you new life. 
And when you place your faith in Jesus, who took the path of humility, when you follow him on that path with him, he will exalt you and invite you to the feast. He will raise you up to sit with him at the right hand of the Father. This invitation remains today. If you are with us this morning and you're not yet a Christian, that invitation is for you to find the glory that you've been longing for, not by what you could do, but find it in Jesus. Come sit at the table. But if you are a Christian with us this morning, maybe you're looking around right now and you see a lot of empty seats. I mean, this theater seats 135. There's a lot of seats left at the table. The master said to the servant, go and invite more. There's more room. Friends, Jesus' invitation continues now, and we, as his people, have the privilege and obligation to invite, to go out onto the highways and to the hedges, to go to the outcasts and the marginalized, to say, you who have been far away, come near. Jesus is offering an incredible invitation. And who is it for? Anyone that wants forgiveness of their sins, of what they've done in the past or what they're doing today, Jesus says, come to the feast, come be forgiven. And anyone that wants a new identity, whose, whose stories have been written in such a way that they don't like that anymore, Jesus says, come to the table. I will give you a new name, a new family. I will welcome you in and give you a new identity. For our neighbors who are longing for a deeper purpose in their life, who have been living a life of someone else's story, Jesus says, come to the table. At this feast, you will find a new story, a story of redemption and restoration, a story that you can play a part in. For anyone that wants real life change, Jesus says, come and I will give you a new life, a new heart. You will have real transformation. Friends, the invitation still goes out to come to the table where you will be honored. In closing, a couple years ago, Sarah and I were invited to a wedding. And I was a childhood friend. We had grown up uh, as neighbors. We went on vacation with them a number of times. Um, they had three kids, and we had three kids. And uh, so we were really close. We grew up with each other. But when she went off to college and uh, moved to Maryland, you know, we grew some distance from them. Parents were still friends, but it was only on special occasions that we ever saw them. And so it was, you know, we learned she was getting married, and it was a joy to receive an invitation, and we were excited for them and their family, and uh, we got to the wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. It was gorgeous. And we walked into the reception, and Sarah and I looked at our name card, and uh, it said, table number one. And we were like, wait, was that a mistake? Oh, there must be head table and then table one. Well, that's awesome. And as we grab our card and we go up and we realize there's Lindy sitting at table one. And she says, Jeremy, Sarah, welcome. Come sit at our table. Sarah and I and my brothers were invited to sit at the head table with her. And she wanted everyone in that room to know that we, her friends growing up, her neighbors growing up, we were her family. And uh, so we sat with her brother and sister, and the, our family sort of sat at table two and three, but we sat at table one, and it was such an honor. We felt so glorious to sit there with this beautiful bride on her wedding day. 
this man leans over to Jesus and says, blessed is everyone who will break bread in the kingdom of God. But in Revelation 19, the angel says to John, blessed are they who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. There is a feast greater than this story. There is a feast being prepared for us now, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And at that wedding supper, Christ, the Lamb, the groom, stands and waits as his bride, the church, you and me, come before him. And he says, come sit at the table. Come sit in the place of honor with me. You are my precious bride. You are my treasure. Take my glory. It's yours. Revelation says that the the gown that the bride wears is glorious. It's radiant. Why? Because it's been washed with the blood of the lamb. We come to the table. We come to the feast. We come to the marriage supper of the lamb not with any glory that we can come up with from ourselves, but with the glory that comes with being covered by the blood of the Lamb. Let us trust in his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus convicts us of the pride that we feel, this desire for glory. And Lord, we're thankful that that invitation stands, that incredible invitation to come to the feast, come to the table, come to the wedding supper, Lord, where we can put on your glory and reflect your glory to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.